0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast, where we seem to be scarily rattling towards the end of the year. But we've got lots of great stuff for you this week. We've got not one but two interviews this week. The first is with bond fund manager veteran John Petullo, who will be talking us through how he's navigated the recent market turmoil.
1: Also joining me this week is Danny Houston. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. Yes, the second interview you were just talking about is with billionaire investor Bill Ackman from Pershing Square Holdings on whether he's worried about a recession hurting his investments and why he sold out of Netflix and Domino's Pizza fairly quickly after buying the shares. Also this week, we'll be looking at the nation's financial resilience in the current cost of living crisis, as well as talking about that tricky task that everyone puts off, writing a will. And we'll have
0: the usual market update for you, including those layoffs at Meta, Primark price rises and a new acquisition for next. So, Danny, let's kick off with some things stateside where we've got midterm election results coming in and that's been causing some market jitters, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it has. Um, Mostly, I think, priced in now. As we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime, the results are still coming in. But it does look like, although there's been uh, what's been called a red splat, there hasn't been a red surge, which uh, I think many people were expecting to be the case. It does look like the Republicans have taken the House of Representatives. But at the moment, the Senate race too close to call, really, but it does look like maybe the Democrats might just hold on there. Now, markets-wise, that kind of gridlock, which now comes into play because we've got obviously the Democrats in the White House and the Republicans um, in control of the House of Representatives, it, it creates a kind of gridlock, which you might think would be bad news, but actually for markets, it's being seen as good news because. It means that some of the things that Joe Biden wanted to do, like bring in extra regulations on the tech sector, he probably isn't going to be able to do. And other measures which might have seen extra spending, which of course then adds cash sloshing around in the US economy, well, that is unlikely to happen as well. Why does that matter? Well, of course, all that extra cash adds to inflation, As I say, we're recording this Wednesday lunchtime. We are expecting the latest US inflation numbers out tomorrow. The expectation is they will come down, and that includes core inflation, because, of course, we saw inflation, the headline rate, come down last time. But core inflation had been incredibly stubborn, up by 6.6%, the highest in 40 years. So the expectation is that it will come down. And of course, if inflation cools, then that means that the Fed might not have to go as far and as fast with interest rates. And we already know how much of an impact those rising rates have been having on markets.
0: So let's switch to company news now. We had some big news out. Obviously, all company news at the moment seems to have a backdrop of cost of living crisis, higher inflation and and the impact that's happening on businesses, um, particularly retailers. But this week, we've had uh, Primark promising not to raise prices um, with that backdrop of cost of living. What's kind of the logic behind that?
1: Uh, The logic behind that is that it's in the best interest of Primark uh, because, uh, well, the company says that it's already seeing uh, the amount of stuff in people's baskets going down and it recognises that customers are having a really difficult time. Now, it sounds like they're being incredibly generous, not raising prices, but of course they have already raised prices, an average of sort of eight percent for this autumn. So, you know, people... People still are feeling the effects, but what they're being told is there won't be any more. Now, Primark, of course, prides itself on being value. That's the end of the market that it is trying to capture. And it does recognize that things are likely to get worse. In fact, it put up a pretty scary number saying that a mix of inflation and falling consumer demand is expected to take a two billion chunk out of the business next year and actually in terms of cost this year it added an extra billion so you can just see the damage that inflation and falling consumer confidence is having on retailers now that said Primark sales were up forty three percent compared with the same period last year, and um, was it a snuggin or something like that that a lot of people have been buying? Oh, what now? (laughs) Snuggin. I've I've probably got that (laughs) completely wrong. It's it's a no a snuddy a snuddy. Uh, See, I think snuggin sounds better, but yes, it's it's a hoodie. But it's like a snood, so it's got a furry, warm thing. And and basically people are buying stuff to try and help them to stay warm so that they don't have to put the heating on quite as quickly, quite as early as they might otherwise have done. Uh, Also reporting just today, we've had an update from Marks and Spencer. Now, they've warned of a gathering storm. You know, some of these outlooks at the moment have uh, pretty Um, tricky language to deal with, Um, profits were down 24%. And they have warned that um, it's going to become even more challenging, although Marks & Spencer has said that it thinks that its customer might be more resilient than many other customers, the likes of Primark's customers, for example, because a lot of their customers are uh, paid above the average wage, uh, or they are retired. Now, Group revenue was up 8.5%, but uh, really being overshadowed by higher overheads. And it said that its energy costs were up a whopping £40 million over the year, which just sort of demonstrates some of the issues that retailers are having to deal with. And one retailer which has just been unable to deal with, with everything that's been going on is the online furniture retailer made it has gone into administration which will lead to the loss of hundreds of job 399 job losses um it's the intellectual brand the uh the furniture the property right that kind of thing that has been bought by next although it won't be buying the remaining stock and of course, that is leading to a whole load of uncertainty for a lot of people. A lot of questions about exactly what is going to happen to their orders. In fact, It's thought that about 4,500 orders are on their way, but no guarantees there. Uh, And and also, it's uh, thought that about 12,000 orders for the UK can't be completed. So, you know, customers really worry because it's not straightforward, Laura, when it comes to getting a refund.
0: No, and I think when things like this happen and, and retailers kind of collapse, the initial situation is always a bit uncertain in terms of how that will be handled, particularly if they're then being bought out by a company. Um, but I would say anyone who's been caught out by this, um, you have a couple of options. If you bought on a credit card, um, then you can claim back under what's called Section 75. Um, or if you bought on a debit card, you can claim back under the chargeback scheme. So you have options available to you if you've ordered goods paid for them and then they've not been delivered um so definitely look that up if you're one of those people in those situations Um, yeah so
1: uh, as you say a lot of uncertainty for a lot of customers but of course a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people who have lost their jobs and It's not just retail where things are getting tricky. The tech sector is particularly tricky at the moment, Laura. And just today, we've had news from Meta. Of course, um, most people listening will know that Meta used to be Facebook. It's the owner of Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. um, Really expanded rapidly in the wake of the pandemic. Got a worldwide headcount of 87,000. But it's announced today 13% of the workforce is to be cut. That's about 11,000 jobs. Now, Mark Zuckerberg has um, sent out a a letter to staff, um, sounding incredibly contrite, saying, look, we moved too fast. He got it wrong. He takes responsibility, which his tone Compared with the tone we had coming out of Twitter just last week when it got rid of half of its workforce has has drawn sort of parallels with a lot of people, um, you know, really listening to what Mark Zuckerberg has to say, though, of course, people are still losing their jobs a lot of questions, of course, at the moment uh, about Twitter and about Tesla. And uh, Tesla investors will be really interested to learn that um, Elon Musk unloaded 19.5 million shares, um, according to SEC filings. That was between Friday and Tuesday billion worth just days after that Twitter deal went through, of course, a $44 billion deal. It leaves Elon Musk with a 14% stake, but a lot of people have been asking, you know, how split is his uh, time now? How much focus is he giving to Tesla? And there have been a number of um, vehicle recalls announced as well over the last um, few months or so. And, and just to end our tech roundup, are you a Disney Plus subscriber, Laura?
0: I am. I watch a lot of Bluey on it, which is my daughter's programme of choice, but I actually quite enjoy it as well. So I think it's worth
1: paying the subscription for that. <laughs> well, a lot of people clearly have been uh, won over by Bluey or one of the many other programmes on Disney Plus. It's added. 12 million subscribers in the three months to September. So uh, this is, is quite a feat. Now stands at 235 million subscribers. That's across three platforms, so ESPN Plus and Hula, not just Disney Plus. But Netflix only has 223 million, so it's it's sort of overtaken that. Now, there are also big questions here because as Netflix has said that it, it's it's struggle because content eats money. And in order to attract subscribers, you have to keep producing content. And it's a merry-go-round. You just can't jump off, which is why Netflix has announced it's introducing adverts. Well, Disney Plus, that sector lost nearly $1.5 billion. So clearly it is pushing now to make that profitable. And one of the things that it has considered, yeah, you guessed it, introducing ads. Uh, Also, of course, Disney, not just streaming services and lots of questions about how many people will be going to their theme parks when we've got such a tricky cost of living situation.
0: Yeah. And kind of wrapping up with the cost of living situation, we've also got some warnings about the housing market. I mean, we've had these warnings for a while of the kind of boom and bust cycle in the housing market starting to show and us coming into that house price falling stage. Um, But there are now actual cracks starting to show, aren't there, Danny? We've had a few house builders reporting this week.
1: Yeah, pretty stark warning from um, Persimmon, um, saying that it expected to sell fewer homes in 2023 and at a lower selling price, which is exactly the sort of metric that um, the UK's biggest house builder by stock market value really doesn't want to be uh, giving as an update. Now, House builders have had a really tricky time this year anyway. I think a lot of investors have been really looking at the market and thinking that the writing is on the wall, that at some point house prices would have to fall and that at some point with rising inflation, interest rates would have to start rising. And that's exactly what has been happening. So shares in persimmon down almost 54% since the start of the year. And as you say, there have been warnings about... um, house prices. In fact, Halifax, the UK's biggest mortgage lender, is saying that house prices have been falling at their fastest rate for 18 months and prices have been down in three of the last four months. Now, in terms of Persimmon, it's issued a warning about its dividend, um, potential cuts to the the double-digit dividend that had been expected. Taylor Winpey, on the other hand, had a a very similar update, um, but uh, has said that it's not expected to change its dividend because it's got a huge balance sheet. But one thing that did stand out in its results is the number of cancellations. So this is people deciding they're going to buy a house and then changing their mind. And I I don't think you'll be surprised at all, Laura, to learn that cancellation rates last year were 14 percent this year. 24% so clearly huge issues for people feeling the effects of the cost of living crisis and you know people really are feeling the effects of higher prices Laura whether it be you know their mortgage or their shop and some new figures um, from research out this week um, shows how unprepared many people are.
0: Yep. So this was some new research from the Money and Pension Service, um, which surveyed people on how much they have in savings. And it found that a quarter of the UK population has £100 or less in savings, um, with a large chunk of that being people that have absolutely nothing in savings. Now, I think we're all aware that there's lots of people out there that that are struggling, that don't have that kind of safety net to fall back on, and that actually probably are carrying quite a lot of debt but it was interesting to see it laid out so starkly so if we think about some of the price rises that we've seen recently I mean we've got food costs going up by about 14% now I think almost 15% if you think about how much that will add on to someone's food bill or things like energy prices lots of people have seen their direct debits kind of double across the whole year Um, and so if we think about that and then we think about the fact that lots of people have no money in savings to help deal with these financial shocks, I think it just really lays bare how tough some people are finding these rising prices at the moment, and that inflation isn't just kind of a percentage number that we talk about, it's having a real impact on people. Um, I would say one encouraging thing at the moment is that There is so many sources of help for people at the moment. I think because there's such a focus on the cost of living crisis, there's so much more publicity around the help that's available out there for people who do find themselves in that situation of not having any cushion to fall back on and and really struggling. So whether that's going to specific debt advice charities or citizens advice, um, it's about kind of seeking out that help and knowing that it's there.
1: Yeah. You know, when you talk about savings and you talk about um, the supermarket shop, 682 pounds a year more for a shop than we were paying 12 months ago. That's an average figure from um, Cantor, which was out earlier this week. And for people who are sort of paying a little bit more, a little bit more here, a little bit more there, a little bit more for absolutely everything, trying to amass those savings... Or if they had a little bit of saving left over from the pandemic, then it's impossible for people.
0: Exactly. And we've talked on the podcast before about, you know, kind of savings rates going up and it being a better time for cash savers. But the reality is that there's lots of people out there that just don't have savings at all. I mean, now there are there are cost of living payments going out to people. There is support there. Um it's just a case of kind of accessing that additional support if you need to um and whether that's listeners of this podcast or people that they think of you know family or friends um, that might need that little nudge to say there is help out there you can go and approach people because that probably does feel like a very daunting thing to do to admit that you're struggling and admit that you might need help but um there's so much
1: out there (sighs) Well, next up, we have the first of our two fund manager interviews. We had a read a question on the recent bond market turmoil and how to handle it if you're invested via a fund. And we got our very own Ryan Hughes to respond a couple of weeks ago. But now we've drafted in a bond fund manager to share. His wisdom, John Petullo has been running bond funds for twenty five years and is co head of global bonds at Janus Henderson Investors. And Laura, I know you caught up with him to hear about how the past few weeks have been.
0: So the bond market has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride recently. So, firstly, what what has it been like running bond money during that time?
2: Yeah, well, it's been remarkably challenging um, for bond managers who, I guess, got used to the backdrop of benign. Inflation, growth, and economic activity and interest rate policy is the, is the short answer. There are long-term downtrends, 20, 30-year downtrends, suggesting bond yields will almost fall forever. And that has been well and truly broken due to the extraordinary policy response by governments and central banks to COVID. It's pretty unusual for monetary and fiscal policy to work together to stimulate an economy. Historically, um, you've had loose monetary and tight fiscal, um, but this time, obviously, we we had arguably a nine and a half trillion um, stimulus in America, and that obviously caused too much demand for the limited supply whilst we opened up the economy post-COVID, and that has caught us and policymakers and, and central bankers on the hoof. And they've had to resort to what I'd characterize as the sort of boom bust economics, which was pretty common when, when I was at school 30 years ago. Um, but it wasn't a political response to, for the governments to get reelected. It was a political response to fight the war on COVID. And unfortunately, they have overstimulated it. And now you have really quite a draconian monetary policy tightening which is quite late and very aggressive and that will cause severe squeezes and constraints on economic activity which is I think then setting up an opportunity for the turning cycle um, and you've got to believe in that the economic cycle is definitely still here and driven by monetary and fiscal policy.
0: And so, what are some of the kind of decisions that you had to make during that time, and and how quickly were you having to make those decisions? I mean, we obviously saw um, continual headlines updating about what was happening over the mm. past um, month or so, but but practically, how was it managing money in that time?
2: Yeah, I, I think well, there's two sides. There's the interest rate exposure and and the credit exposure, and. We were always kind of on the view as fairly late cycle on credit, and we weren't. The valuations weren't particularly appealing, and the strategic bond fund was fairly liked on credit. And any bear market rally of which we've had quite a few year to date were opportunities really to sell credit and move back into sovereigns, and that was kind of not too bad. The tougher time for us on this fund was. We came into the year pretty short duration, so we were about three years duration, um, and our normal range is three to nine. Um mm-hmm. but unfortunately we moved up to about high sevens eights in March, April. Mm-hmm. You know, to be honest, we felt that the Fed had this in hand and they were doing the right started to do the right thing and bond yields had already sold off quite a bit and we didn't want to be short duration. What compounded things, of course, was not just the Ukraine war, but also the extraordinary tightness of many labor markets, not, not least the, the American labor markets, which have caught many people on the hop. And there's, there's good reasons for that. And that then meant essentially that we had moved our duration a bit too long, too early. On on the um, In answer directly to your question, it's actually fairly easy to move duration and interest rate sensitivity around because we use interest rate futures and they are wonderfully liquid and very easy to trade. It's harder to move the physical credit book, and that takes mm-hmm. a while, and that's more kind of structural, you know, like, it's almost a long-term structural accumulator or decumulator of credit through the cycle. And then the, the way around to manage that finally is to use credit derivatives where you can very efficiently and very cheaply buy or sell credit exposure using credit derivative indexes. And would we use that more tactically through the covid crisis because we knew we wanted a lot more credit exposure but we didn't want to get stuck on physically buying you know relatively illiquid high yield bonds so moving things around actually is not not too bad um i think we'll come on to it but our timing has been too early
0: Mm. and when it comes to the strategic bond fund specifically that has underperformed its peer group over the past year slightly so um what has led to that? Is that really just being kind of too early to that longer duration story? Yes.
2: Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, firstly, we've got a 20 plus year track record of good asset allocation and good performance. So, yeah, you know, hands up, we have underperformed this year and we are painfully aware of it. The credit decision was good, but it, to be honest, it got swamped by moving long of interest rate risk too early. And uh, it was primarily that decision which has hurt us so far we from here we actually think i would say this wouldn't i you'll probably you'll probably tell me but from here we actually think we are really well set up for next year so we have over eight years interest rate sensitivity duration more than six of that is in in, and and the, the 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 balancing amount is in investment grade and if you believe in the economic cycle, if you believe monetary policy works, um, now is the time I would suggest clients should be thinking about moving from, you know, pretty respectable cash rates into something a bit longer dated and the most logical move back into sovereign bonds, which we are heavily exposed to.
0: So how how bleak, I guess, is your base case <laughs> for the next year?
2: yeah. No, it's a, it's a really good question. We are actually fairly cautious, and I mean, it is quite depressing looking at the outlook, not just living in the UK and the kind of mess of politics and the, the mini budget and all this sort of stuff. I think the bigger depressing note is there's a, now a global synchronized downturn going on in the world economy, which can be, could be quite severe, could be quite long, and it's synchronized, um, and that is unusual. And China, if you recall, kind of saved the day back in 2016 17. Um, The Chinese economy, they obviously have a quite significant property crisis going on at at, at the minute, A, a crisis of their own making. But property crises tend to be more sinister and more and tougher to get through. And, you know, interest rates and mortgage rates in the States have gone from four to seven, in the UK, they've gone from two to Six and I mean, arguably they're five, but there has been quite draconian moves in monetary policy all around the world, which will exaggerate that synchronized downturn. And just to cheer you up even more, um, <laughs> we just had a MMT, you know, a, a fiscal experiment which, frankly, didn't work very well. And even you know, the the MMT crowd would say, well, you know, you stimulate the economy until you close the output gap. And and you stop stimulating economy to avoid, you know, when unemployment falls to a suitable level, they don't say just stimulate it forever and then cause a shortage of workers, and cause inflation. You know, it's easy to criticise, but the is I think it's quite tough for any credible government to then go back to fiscal policy to say it, it succeeded. And obviously, we've got the um. The U.S. midterm elections results just coming through, but the Americans, I think, will 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 be log jammed and a bit won't be able to do fiscal. UK is has been disciplined, you know, um, on on their fiscal policy. And I mean, I personally, I've got a lot of sympathy with fiscal as, as as I gave in the previous answer. But it's got to be right. It's got to be invested and not consumed. And mm. unfortunately, fiscal has arguably got a bit of a bad name now even though most people have probably been pleading for fiscal in Europe, especially for years and years and years. And hence, the point is, you know, where's the next stimulus or growth from? It's not from fiscal. Um, Confidence will be eroded with housing coming off, even if you cut interest rates. And then China ain't got to stay in the stable world. So we're slightly struggling to see um, where the stimulus comes from this time. Which, of course, is a you know, to be invested in sovereign bonds.
0: Yeah. But uh, as a kind of end investor, um, what should you be doing with that? What kind of things should you be thinking about with your portfolio um, as it comes to mm-hmm. bond funds, but maybe even a wider asset allocation? Yeah. How you, can you come, kind of prepare for some of that doom, I guess?
2: Well, again, it's quality assets in quality countries. So cash, frankly, does work. Um Shorter date with bonds certainly work at the minute as do shorter dated um, corporate bonds. And then with a view to getting longer duration, as we are in sovereign bonds and better quality companies. I mean, I know there's a big bias towards American growth companies with American exceptionalism, but the American economy is remarkably dynamic, and has an awful lot has got an awful lot going for it. And most of the few corporate bonds we held, we hold are actually invested in the states rather than the UK, which has quite an illiquid corporate bond market. I think the other thing, and this is really in answer to your question, is most, and I'm not an equity expert at all, um, but most of the selling, most of the sell-off in equities has been because the PEs have shrunk, not because earnings have shrunk. And Mm -hmm. the equity strategists we respect really highlight how important housing is to people's balance sheets, their wealth effects and the economy and hence it's not really until earnings come down and the housing market bottoms and activity bottoms as measured in any sort of economic activity survey that I would argue equity markets truly bottom as in earnings bottoms and PE bottoms because you get the double whammy obviously of PE shrinking and then earnings coming down but broadly speaking earnings haven't come down yet. And I think that trough in activity would probably be around this time next year mm-hmm. where earnings would have come down quite a bit and PEs were down. And then and then maybe that would be the bottom for risk assets. In the meantime, I would stick very much to, to quality assets in quality countries and certainly not go bottom fishing in anything esoteric or illiquid or leather, which obviously has been... Real well, well rewarded until mm. recently because most of those are levered, levered assets. Mm.
0: Um. Thank you very much for that. We're going to check back in with you in a year and check back on your uh, claim that you're very well positioned for the year ahead. And we'll see <laughs> That's how absolutely. That out.
2: I suppose <laughs> my confidence. Yeah, my confidence is probably stronger, you know, six months a year out than the next three months, mm-hmm. but all i mean from the modeling the work we've done the economic data is actually coming in worse than even we anticipated but until the fed gets comfort that inflation has definitively peaked at core inflation and what they're really waiting to see is the employment markets to start getting tougher and unemployment to start ticking up then we think um interest rates could peak out, and the final thing I might just say is interest rates it's kind of consensual in the market. the interest rate will go a bit higher, and then they'll plateau for like nine you know six to nine months. Mm-hmm. historically, in inflation regimes, interest rates tend to go up and then they get cut quite quickly, so they may only plateau for one, two, or three months
0: mm. in an, in
2: a, in an inflation regime which we're in that's true historically, whereas the market is of the opinion that interest rates are going to go up and stay up and plateau Mm. for a long time. And I think that, feel free to test me on that in in a year's time.
1: Coming up, we have an interview with the famed billionaire Bill Ackman. But before that, Laura, you have been ticking off that must-do item on everyone's to-do list, one many of us never get around to, writing a will.
0: I know, it's been on my to-do list for so long. And I will tell you there's a certain amount of relief that I have now ticked it off. Um, But I just wanted to flag that the reason that I started this will writing process is because we are in Make a Will Month, which is November. Um, It's this great scheme where solicitors volunteer their time and in return, you get linked up with the solicitor who will write your will. And in return, you make a charity donation to Will Aid. So it kind of feels like a win all round in that charities are getting a donation that they previously wouldn't have. I'm getting something ticked off my to-do list um, and everyone's kind of winning. So I just wanted to flag, you can go to willaid.org.uk to find out more information about it. Um, and you just donate the average amount that it would normally cost, to pay for a will so it's a hundred pounds donation for a single basic will or 180 pounds for a pair of basic mirror wills if you were getting one with a partner Um, and then in turn that charity donation goes to nine different charities Um, so it's a really good prompt I think for people who have that on their to-do list and have been thinking about doing it and it's running for all of November and actually we previously did an interview on the podcast with the solicitor all about wills and all of the things that you need to think about. So if you wanted a little prep work for it, then you can go back and listen to that one that was in the summer um, and that'll give you a good starter for it.
1: And if you still procrastinate and you miss The end of November, then a lot of people might find that uh, having a will written is one of the perks that their employer provides. So uh, don't put it off because once you get it done, oh, you feel so much better. Did you feel better when you finally got it done, Laura?
0: So much better. I mean, I, I'm i not going to sugarcoat it. Some of the conversations around it while you're trying to work out your will are so bleak. And we, like, we're just throwing around the term double death scenario and what <laughs> happens in that situation if my husband and I both die. I mean, it's not cheery, but it is essential. And we do have a child and we probably previously should have worked out where she was going to go if the dreaded double death scenario happened um so it's not a cheery task but I do feel so much better that it's sorted and I can just tick it off my list and it's not one that you need to revisit unless you have a big change in circumstances or until our daughter becomes you know 18 and wouldn't need that guardian it's now something that I can just sit back and forget about for a few years
1: double death scenario I think my <laughs> husband actually went through and played out exactly how it might happen as well but uh, there we are so bleak. Now, finally, Dan was lucky enough to meet with billionaire investor Bill Ackman on his recent trip to the UK. Bill manages the FTSE 100 investment company Pershing Square Holdings and is one of the most widely followed investors in the world. They talked about some of the investment decisions Bill's made recently and the headwinds for stocks in his portfolio. Let's hear what he had to say.
0: Bill, are you worried about a potential recession? Hurting U.S. consumer, um, consumers starting to spend less, and of course this would feed
3: through to lower earnings for some of these companies in your portfolio. I would say the following: um, you know, the where we are in the restaurant space is is kind of the highest value per dollar, right? Chipotle is an incredible meal at a very low cost for a family, and in a recessionary environment, you know, historically people don't stop eating out, but they might adjust from the sit-down restaurant uh, you know, with menus and a waitress uh, to a, a, you know, a, a fast food uh, environment or a place where they go pick up their own food at the counter. And you know, the, actually, the, the fast food, if you will, the quick service restaurants have generally done well in recessionary environments. And I think the, the overarching point that it, it, you know, the, a res- the value of a business, unless it's a highly levered, uh, very economically sensitive company, is not particularly affected by the, you know, uh, by the event of a recession, right? If you own a, the value of a stock, right, the value of an interest in a company is the present value of the cash that business generates over its life. And if it's a business that should exist forever, well, pick Hilton, for example, um, we can expect that over, you know, in, in past history, there's been a recession every seven or eight years. Let's assume the future is the same and there's a recession every seven or eight years going forward. It doesn't, that's kind of factored into the value of the, of the enterprise. The only reason why a recession creates, it destroys value is if you have a company that is highly levered, and then if revenues decline, you know, their cash flow goes negative and they can't, they can't support their debt and they go bankrupt. Right? But if you own a very well capitalized business, I, I don't think a recession has a meaningful impact. It might affect that year's revenues and cash flow, but that's just one line item in a, a long spreadsheet of cash flows that you discount if you will, into the present. But the businesses we own, Universal Music being the largest one, uh, and a good example, you know, people are not going to, we think, cancel their Apple Music subscription because we're in a recession. It's the cheapest form of entertainment. It's, you know, 10 cent an hour or something like this. Uh, compare that to a movie or a, a video game, and you pay a lot more.
0: I mean, you, you sold stake in Netflix this year after only owning it for
3: three months. You sold your stake in Domino's, you only bought that last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, aren't you a believer in long-term investment? You know, particularly with Netflix, obviously share price is up quite sure. a bit since you sold it. So. Yes, so we are, we look for businesses we can own so to speak forever. Our mm-hmm. favorite holding period is something that we never need to sell. Universal music, I hope, is something we'll never need to sell. But we always reserve the right that if new information comes to light, that causes us to reassess our original thinking. Uh, you know, prepared to exit. And, and Netflix is really the traditional example of that. I mean, a business, uh, what attracted us stock was down from the, you know, middle 700s to, you know, high 300s on a subscriber miss that the company attributed to, you know, COVID difficulty predicting kind of the COVID, uh, you know, Netflix was a huge beneficiary in COVID. And the thought was, you know, they got a little bit off trend. Um, three months later, they came back and said, well, we're not sure it's actually COVID. We think that the we have a much larger number of un- unpaying, i.e. people who share passwords than we thought or than we've at least disclosed previously. Uh, this is causing us to reassess our business model. We're going to go to, you know, an advertising model. Um, and while we have enormous confidence in a management team that's done a fantastic job over many, many years, uh, it's a completely new approach to their business. And I think it, it for us, it made the future difficult to predict in terms of the future, you know what, what's going to happen. And we own, <clears throat> we're a very concentrated investor. We put a large amount of capital in each commitment. We want these to be things that we can predict with a high degree of confidence over a long period of time. And Netflix became, mm-hmm. if you will, unpredictable for us. So we sold it. And we sold it around $225 a share, no, $275 a share. Um, and uh, I actually, I don't remember, a precise exit price. Uh, it's trading above the price we exited. but that doesn't mean it, w- it wasn't the right decision to exit for us. Mm-hmm. An investor who owns 100 stocks is a place for Netflix. An investor who owns nine or 10, in light of the uncertainty created by the changes in how they're going to approach their market, we felt it was not something that could fit into our portfolio. In general, we like to own things for the long term. On Domino's, we actually made a profitable investment over the course of the year. Our original holding period intention was not a year, but the world changed in a pretty dramatic way. Uh, one got a lot more difficult to get labor a lot more difficult to find drivers, a uh, much higher interest rate in, uh, environment. And the combination of those factors and the valuation that when we sold made it, in our view, uh, just a less attractive opportunity. We'd rather deploy the cash elsewhere.
0: So if you want to hear more about what Bill has to say about Pershing Square Holdings and his outlook for 2023, we've put together a few videos which are available on AJ Bell's website that's everything for this week. Um, Next week, we'll be bringing you a speedy update on the autumn statement just after it's happened, with all of the tax changes that are going to impact your pocket and portfolio. To make sure that you don't miss that and any other podcast episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them. And if you have a spare moment, do review the podcast for us. And we'll see you next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes.